You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey, Sean, how's it going? David, I am doing great. Thank you. I'm doing great with the exception of my German learning. So as I mentioned last week, I haven't made any progress on my Harry Potter book number one, which I purchased in German. It's not going well there. And my streak on Duolingo learning German has ended. No, um, I haven't been able to keep a streak. I get maybe two days a weekend, uh, get a couple lessons, but yeah, I don't have anything new for us yeah. this week. Well, and what really sucks is that you can like get past, like if you miss one day, you can like refill your like, I guess these like little things that allow the streak to continue if you have yeah. enough of them, but I ran out of those. So I probably missed like 10 days over the last like 80 but this time it, it went from like, you know, 80 to three. Oh, so, you had 80 days. Wow. So that is, yeah. Was, it, 90 days would be it, definitely the goal you want to hit, right? Yeah. Well, it should have been 80 days, but I missed so, so many. It was probably like more so like 65 or 70, but this right. time it's down to three or four. And unfortunately, this podcast is not brought to you by Duolingo. They don't want to support us, but uh, <laughs> you can always tweet at them and tell them they should. Yeah, yeah definitely. We'll, we'll give that a try. Uh, how about you, David? How are you? I've been good, and a fun thing I knew you would appreciate. I've been reading the uh, the saga of the Volsungs to my son as a bedtime story. He's only three, but that uh, he finds it very boring and he falls right asleep. But I've been enjoying reading a little bit of that. Interesting. Do you find it a little too risque for August, or is it kind of over his head? I, I don't think he understands, but we can hope. Yeah, it's a little risque. For kids. Uh, it doesn't matter. You know, kids should be <laughs> they should be exposed to shit like that, anyways. That's that's um, yeah. Mythology is definitely lots lots of good lessons to learn, but a little bit uh, controversial for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, Dr. Matthias Nordvig does have a book um, called Norse Mythology for Children or something like that. Yeah. I don't, I've never read it. I don't I don't have a copy of it, but I am wondering if that's something you could also potentially buy and then read to August. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to look at that. Yeah, maybe one that's a little more uh, age appropriate. Yeah, I have a good one on Greek yeah. mythology that's more kid appropriate. Yeah, I need one for the Norse. Awesome. Cool. Well, we can we can go ahead and get started then. Uh, we're going to continue our series on Loki um, and talk a little bit more about uh, one of the children of Loki, which is something that we have done in the last uh, in the last couple weeks here. So, in last week's episode, we began our discussion on chapters thirty three and thirty four of Gilfaganin from the Prosetta. Chapter thirty three detailing the character traits of the god Loki, and chapter thirty four detailing his offspring. So we briefly discussed his sons, Nari or Narfi, um, it could be either one, and Vali, both of whom were probably the children of Loki and his wife, Sigyn, but then went into a little further detail of his son, Jormungandr, and his daughter, Hel. The gods were foretold that Hel, Jormungandr, and Fenrir, the wolf, would bring on the destruction of the gods at Ragnarok. So Odin decided to banish Hel to Niflheim, where she would become the ruler of nine worlds, and then cast Jormungandr into the sea, where he would ultimately have a run-in with Thor that we discussed on our episode called Thor the Fisherman. However, the gods decided to keep Fenrir the wolf in Asgard, which we will discuss in further detail in this episode, along with his relationship, in quotes, with the god Tyr. It's interesting, you know, especially when we spend when you spend this much time with the myths, right? Because when I first read about these stories, that uh, you know, of, of course, what would you do, right? You're Odin, you're the king of the gods. You have a prophecy that these creatures will destroy you, so you throw them into the ocean, you throw them into the underworld. 
right, from Odin's perspective. But then as we spend some time really getting to know Loki, right, really wanting to see things from Loki's perspective, it seems incredibly unfair to him, right? He was just, you know, has some kids uh, they're trying to raise out in Jotunheim. Odin's, you know, crazy guy getting these prophecies and thinking he knows the future. And then just, look, Loki's not happy. I find this story, or the, I guess this story is one of my favorites um, in all of Norse mythology because I think that this serves as like the primary catalyst, if you will, of what is to come in the lead up to Ragnarok. And one of the themes of our podcast, David, and you did an episode, a solo episode on this, is on fate. So Odin gets this yeah. prophecy that these three beings, these three children of Loki, are destined to kill him. They're destined to kill all of the gods. However, everything that they do sort of pushes that fate to actually happening, if that makes sense. Yeah, the, the concept um, I like, and this comes from the, uh, the Greek Stoic philosophy, one of the things they say is they talk about fate, and they say to live your life in accordance with nature. Whatever it is that fate or nature has planned, go with it, and life will go better. And that's not what Odin does, right? Odin wants to fight it. And does that make everything worse, right? Because let's say, like... Ragnarok's always going to happen. Is there a better way or a worse way in which it could all happen, right? Sort of the, the destruction and the rebirth of the world, right? That's, that's always going to happen. Maybe Odin makes things worse, but maybe yeah, we'll discuss definitely. that at the end. But there's really a lot to say about uh, Fenrir and Tyr, so we'll probably focus on them today. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. We can uh, we can pick up this conversation and, and everybody will kind of be able to make their, or, uh, you know, make their own judgments after they hear the story. So we can go ahead and get started. Yeah. So again, this is going to be from Gilfaganin from the Prosetta. Um, this is going to be the second portion of chapter 34, um, which deals on the children of Loki. And since we did discuss Hell and Jormungandr last week, this little story about Fenrir and Tyr, and like also the rest of the gods, happens in the second portion of chapter 34. As I mentioned, the gods cast Hell into Niflheim, Odin specifically, and they cast Jormungandr into the sea. However, the Aesir decided to raise Fenrir at home. And that's yeah, the thing that in the John Lindau's book that he says, maybe, maybe you know, why did they raise him in, um, in Asgard? And maybe it's because Odin really likes wolves, right? He's just partial to wolves. So he didn't, he didn't elaborate any further on, uh, you know, Gary or like Odin owning two wolves, Gary and Frecky, which we, I believe, discussed in uh, Grimness Small from the Poetic Edda. Yeah, I think that must be what he means, right? Because, yeah, Odin, there's, a, there's an eagle of Odin, I think. There's the, the wolves of Odin. I think that's the eagle that's in the world tree. So that sort of uh, Odin has these other... Maybe spirit animals. Yeah, so maybe a wolf is a spirit animal. Yeah, definitely. But it is kind of curious. Like, why did, why did he not, like, cast Fenrir anywhere? Um, he, he sort of, like, at least in the early part, kind of, like, kept him there as a guest. And, like, you'll see here shortly that Fenrir actually conversed, you know, with the Aesir. He was able to have a full conversation with them. But they ultimately decided to kind of betray any trust that they may have had at that point. So when they had Fenrir, only Tyr was courageous enough to approach and feed him. The Aesir saw how much the wolf grew, and each day they were reminded that he was destined to harm them and kill them. So the Aesir decided that their best course of action was to create a fetter to keep him chained up. They designed a fetter called Laidin and brought it to Fenrir and allowed him to, quote, test his strength against it, which he seems to have been okay with. So Fenrir, however, was able to escape, and he was able to do so by only flexing his muscles for the fetter to break. Last week, I was telling you all my interest in just what these words mean and where these words, uh, Old Norse words, come from. That I, I think I read this right. That Leidig is a uh, a river in Switzerland, 
So why that's... Uh, oh, really? Yeah. That maybe that's probably a, a reference that was on purpose. Yeah. Well, no, that's interesting because you, you I, I know there was like a previous episode that we did where I think it may have been from uh, Hemskringla where we discussed like this actual landmark that was mentioned in this source that we found yeah. was actually in Russia. And I think there was another time where we discussed, we like looked up an island or something that was like off the coast of Denmark that was mentioned in like one of the Norse, the Norse sources. So I'm glad that you did that. And it's kind of interesting that there's a uh, river, I think you said in Switzerland. Yeah. Right. So whether that's what they, they think that that's, you know, you see that river on the, on the land of the earth and it's like, oh yes. And that was the fetter that we tried to tie a fender. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So since that fetter did not work, the gods created a second one which would be twice as strong, called Dromi. They once again brought this fetter to Fenrir and told him that he would be renowned for his strength if such a magnificent forging was unable to hold him. So Fenrir understood that to gain renown, and I made a note here, was this one of the Havamal virtues, like that reputation, like reputation being everything, he would have to be in danger. So he agreed to allow the gods to chain him using Dromi. He struggled with all of his might, However, eventually the fetter snapped once again and was thrown into the distance. This caused the expressions that when one succeeds in a difficult task, they are freeing themselves from a lading or a dromi. So it just gives you a little bit more insight as to what those words may mean, if not a river in Switzerland, David. <laughs> no, and I'm checking my notes and I think I misspoke that it's not that it's not that first word. It's the name of the third uh, string that they created. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So well, you, you got ahead of well, yourself, but it's it's no, all good. Yeah, exactly. I forgot to. <laughs> no, it's good to get our mistakes out of the way because typically we make like 20 or 30 of them an episode. So I think we're exactly. probably three or, three or so already into this one. So anyway, at this point, the Aesir start to panic. They created two fetters to try to keep this, this uh, beast of Ragnarok locked up. So he potentially couldn't escape and help to cause Ragnarok. Odin sends Skirnis, who is known as Frey's messenger, to Svartalfheim, which is the world of the Dark Elves slash the Dwarves. And he asked them to create a fetter called Gleipnir. And David, I think, is, is Gleipnir the uh, river in Switzerland? Let me see. Uh, better Google search to make sure I'm not... Uh, yeah, we don't want to be wrong about two, the same thing twice in a row. Audio edit. Narrator. It was, in fact, not a river in Switzerland. It's, a, it's an old Norse word that means the open one. I'm wondering what my notes, where I got my notes from. I thought it was from John Rindow. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. We can yeah. we can uh, get back to that maybe. So one other note here, and I know Skirnis actually shows up in a another poem from the Poetic Edda that we have not discussed yet. I know we mentioned it, um, but that poem is called For Skirnis, but he is acting at the will of Frey. So in this case, Skirnis is also mentioned as being Frey's messenger in the Prosetta, whereas we have a poem from the Poetic Edda, so there's some consistency there. Yeah, maybe when we talk more with Frey, there's, there's not a ton of myths that involve Frey. We'll probably have to include that one. And just that idea that he's sort of right, the lord of the, the light elves, Alfheim. No, right, he, he, was given, yeah. he was given Alfheim, yeah. Right. And then he has this guy that kind of communicates with the Svart Alfheim, right? That there's something uh, interesting about him and connecting the, the elves yeah, and I wonder if like Skirnis is not unlike Thor's uh, human servant. Thialfi, yeah. Thialfi, that's it. I right. wonder if like Skirnis is not unlike Thialfi and maybe like a human himself. Or since we do know the elves are present in Asgard, uh, maybe yeah. Frey is an elf, but he just is considered a Vanir god, you know, from Vanaheim. But 
as we discussed multiple times in, in our episode on the nine worlds, you know, if you're kind of like putting like each person or God into like a different world, maybe you're looking at it incorrectly. Whereas all of the beings should be looked at as different tribes as opposed to like different species. So at this point, you could also look that at Frey is a Vanir, you know, but he is with the Aesir now and maybe he is an elf, but he's also with the Aesir now, if that makes sense. The, the mythological thinking, it's all true at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. So the dwarves in Svartalfheim end up creating a fetter from six different elements. The noise of a cat's footsteps, the beard of woman, the roots of a mountain, the sinews of a bear, and I am a fucking idiot. I didn't know what sinews was, so I had to Google it. The breath of a fish and the spittle of the bird. The fetter was obviously made from things that did not exist. It's funny that they all are like things that don't exist, except you can find the sinew of a bear. Uh, that's what I'm going to have to think on that one a little bit, but it also sounds like I one of those uh, magic spells, right? Like Eye of Newt and uh, everything else. Yeah. yeah, and I'm sure there might be a beard on some women. <laughs> yeah. yeah things that are hard uh, to find. maybe I mean, unlikely birds, do birds have spittle ever i'm sure they do yeah. yeah you know what i don't i don't know what they right. were i don't know what snorri was trying to say anyway the but, dwarves make the things the that are hard from... to find something like that yes there we go yeah. the dwarves created the fetter from six different elements that did not not exist but they were hard to find is the better way to say it so anyway then the story takes a not a turn but it kind of just like breaks the fourth wall here again uh gilfagenin is um discussed by a figure named Gengliri, who was actually a King Gilfi of Sweden. And these three beings that are all aspects of Odin, high, just as high, and third. So at this point, you take a step back and Gengliri, after hearing the story, asks what the fetter looked like once it was completed. So high, one of the aspects of Odin, told him that the fetter was smooth and soft as a silk ribbon, yet reliable and strong. So then we go back into the story. The Aesir received the fetter and thanked Skirnis for his services. And then they invited Fenrir to a lake called Amsvartner, which means pitch black. They went to an island on the lake, which is called Lingvi, where they offered to let the wolf break the band Gleipnir. And I actually did look up Lingvi to see if it was like a uh, an island somewhere like off the coast of Norway. Yeah. It is not. <laughs> but anyway, so the gods themselves, they had to go with the bands. They tried breaking it, but they were unsuccessful. But they stated to Fenrir that surely he would be able to break it. Fenrir did note that such a small and soft band would not produce any renown if he was able to break it. And he also distrusted it, correctly so, since it was made with treachery. So he said, fuck, no, I'm not doing that. He declined to allow it to be put on his legs. You know, it's, what so, just strikes me at this yeah, moment is it's one of those things where if Loki was on their side in this moment, he'd be the one who'd be able to talk someone into like, you know, what are you, a chicken? It just looks like a string. You, you, you can't handle uh, putting a string, you know, around you. You, know, you think yeah. you're so strong, you broke all these other ones. You know, it, that Loki would know the trick to get someone to uh, agree to it, but... That's not what Loki was wanting to help with here. Yeah, yeah, and I do wonder where Loki was in all this because yeah. he obviously had to be unhappy he, <laughs> at this point. He had to have known that, like maybe, uh, you know, Jormungandr was thrown into the sea and Hell was banished to Niflheim. Yeah, I am. I do wonder like where he happens to be at this moment. Yeah. But this also kind of remi- randomly reminds me of our episode on Utgard Loki. Yeah, um, which I know we also mentioned in previous weeks where 
Thor unsuccessfully lifts up a cat that is actually the Midgard servant Jormungandr. In that episode, Loki was present. Um, So Loki was present with a cat that was actually his son. Um, So I found that very interesting. And I think like three months ago when that episode came out, I, I made this like meme on Twitter where it was Tom Hiddleston as Loki, like with a smile on his face. And it was like, my son. And it was like, oh, Loki's face when he realized that his cat or his son dressed as a cat totally embarrassed Thor. And there's always been that question about Utgarda Loki, whether it's like super Loki and that somehow, yeah, that his magic is stronger than uh, Loki's deceptions and things like that. But Yeah, yeah, definitely. So anyway, at this point, the Aesir were worried that they would not be able to convince Fenrir to try on the fetters. So in desperation, they reminded him that he already has broken powerful iron fetters and that if he was unable to break free, the gods wouldn't need to fear him anyway, so they would just set him free. So what was the harm in trying? However, Fenrir was no fool. Um, again, he's Loki's child, so maybe that played a part in his, um, I guess, his wit. And he recognized that if he was unable to break free, the gods would betray him and keep him there. So he then respectfully, quotes, declined the test unless one of the gods proved there would be no treachery by having one of them put their hand in his mouth and potentially be subject to be bitten off. None of the Aesir volunteered except for the god Tyr, again Tyr being the only god that was brave enough to feed Fenrir when he was in Asgard. And so a brief reminder on Tyr, and David, I know you've discussed Tyr a decent amount, like with uh, his rune um, and everything like that, but I wanted to have a brief reminder here that in the poetic Edda version of Thor's fishing trip, Tyr was Thor's companion. I think that was um, one where the... It's called Himsvita. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that the scholars kind of disagreed on, because in so many ways it seemed like maybe we're really talking about Loki, right? That there's a horrifying monster of a mother and all these different things. They certainly wrote that it was Tyr, and it's Maybe they, you know, put bits and pieces of the poem different places and, and just went with it. But, yeah. yeah, and in that episode, you also find out that Tyr's uh, parents are giants. Yeah. Um, but again, Tyr is living in Asgard, so he is a part of the Aesir tribe at that point. Yeah. No, the, where, where um, Tyr comes from, because other than that one um, citation in that one poem, it's very unclear where Tyr comes from. And so I'll probably come back to that idea later as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. So Tyr placed his right hand in Fenrir's mouth. Um, note that Fenrir has now agreed to be fettered by Gleipnir, and he was. The wolf struggled and tried to break free with all of his might. The gods laughed at his failure, all but Tyr, who had lost his right hand. However, Fenrir was truly bound, and he was trapped. To make matters worse for Fenrir, and this shows exactly how horrible and yeah, how horrible and abhorrent the gods can be. They put a sword in his mouth with the handle on the lower part of his gums and the sword tip on the upper part of his gums. So Fenrir growled menacingly, and the saliva that ran from his mouth formed a river called Van, which means hope. He would remain there until Ragnarok. Taking a step back outside of the story, Gangleri makes notes of how gruesome Loki's children were. Keep in mind, in chapter 34 of Gilfaganin, you hear about what the Aesir did to Hel, Jormungandr, and now Fenrir. And it's weird that he didn't find the gods themselves gruesome. But then he also asks, why did the gods simply not just kill Fenrir? 
So High, the storyteller, stated that the gods didn't want to defile their land with the wolf's blood, even though they knew that the wolf was prophesied to kill Odin himself. And then I made another note here, was this the Havamal virtues? Because Fenrir yeah, can be looked at that, as a guest. A neat catch that this myth is a lot about the idea of justice, right? And that, yeah, you know, Loki has horrifying children. They are allowed to imprison his children, but then it wouldn't be right to kill them, right? But then Loki's going to be upset either way, right? But yeah, like what would the consequences be if they just decided to kill Loki's three monstrous children, right? Yeah. One other thing is you were talking about this, this gruesome torture they're doing of the wolf really reminds me of some things. I can't think of a specific one from a, a Greek mythology of, yeah, what is the tortures that, that Hades does of people in the underworld? Uh, things like hanging a guy from a cliff and there's a bird that comes by to eat his liver every day and some of these different things. Like, why did they need to do that to put the sword there other than... Yeah, like, it's it's really interesting to think about because, like, that's kind of an asshole thing. Like, Fenrir was, like, yeah. kind of, like, could it be... You could, like, look at what Fenrir was doing as, like, enjoying, like, a sport. Like, not necessarily a game of wits, but a game of wits and strength. Yeah. And the gods won. They tricked him. But then they yeah. decide to put a sword in his mouth. And it's like, okay, well, if you want Ragnarok to happen, if Fenrir no. breaks free, he's going to try to make it happen. And I, I won't spoil too much, but if anyone is reading ahead to Ragnarok, that that, that image of the sword in his mouth is kind of a uh, foretelling of something. So yeah, that we'll come oh, back yeah. to that, I'm sure. Yeah, Definitely. And I, I did make a quick note here. Um, like, did Loki feel he could not interject with the treatment of his kids? So I thought about this because, like, we see, we have seen that Loki, he feels like he needs to satisfy the gods to, like, re-earn favor with them. Right. So, like, let's say Loki knew what was going on, or even Loki was present. Why did he not, why did he feel like he couldn't interject if that was the case? Or, yeah. Loki being an agent of fate, as you've discussed a few times, David, did he just want this to happen because it was fated to happen? And did he want his kids to be pissed off? To satisfy yeah. Ragnarok. Yeah, like usually Loki's trying to talk his way out of things. Usually that's when it involves him himself personally, right? Uh-huh. But then whether he's really just like thinking of revenge or things like that, right? Either either he's there or he doesn't, you know, they do this while he's not present, right? Yeah. yeah and, but it's something I, I thought of, like, yeah. you know, because I, I do I like this, the idea of fate. And again, we won't get too far into this, this episode, mm-hmm. but the gods are like satisfying their own fate, their foretold fate. And like, I wonder if they did decide to, like, do something different. Yes, Ragnarok probably still would have happened. Maybe they expedited it. Maybe they made, like, they set they set it in motion sooner than they were supposed to. Right. And that idea, yeah, who, who knows what else would have happened uh, eventually to, to piss off Loki, to get his children, you know, involved in something, right? But that uh, certainly this is the way it did go. Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing I had here, uh, Tyr had to have known that he was going to lose his hands. Um, but he probably felt it was necessary to lose it so he could trap Fenrir. And I think you mentioned that Tyr previously, he satisfies like one type of the hero archetype. But I could right. be wrong. I, I know you mentioned that previously. No, they, they describe him as the hero archetype sometimes. And I, for some reason, I often think of him as kind of the king archetype. Although clearly like Odin is usually the king of the gods. But this is, it goes to that question of where does Tyr actually come from? And a lot of things I've read is that he is a much older god. He, he was present in other cultures before this. As kind of like a sky god or the sky father, the, the king kind of uh, archetype. But he's also very involved with war and and kind of a warrior archetype as well. And here he loses his right hand. So if he use if he wielded the sword, now hopefully he's like left handed. Right, I think he's, it's a yeah, spear or a sword, right? But then yeah, that, that now he does. He's not 
clearly much of a warrior, but that might be kind of part of his progression, right? That now, yeah, he doesn't fight, he leads, right? Hopefully. Yeah. But it's also these kind of old news because now Odin is the king, right? So he's, so yeah, Tyr doesn't know where he fits in anymore, right? He's just kind of this character that shows up once in a while. Yeah, clearly, because he has his own rune. He must have been very important at one point, right? So that's one way to see this as the transitions of who's the king of the gods. And then his other role, there's some other god, I think, Forseti, who's very much like the god of justice. Tyr serves that role a lot, too. I don't know if you've seen that anywhere, Sean. Or... Yeah, no, we dis- we definitely discussed Forseti at one point. Yeah. Um, I think he was like the god of like laws or marriages or right. something. Or the god of, yeah, maybe you're right. He was like the god of justice. I, and this is me, like Wikipedia... Yeah. Eat it in real time. No, but um, that's and but you really like, almost never hear anything about Forseti. I don't think there's too many good stories about him. He's just like mentioned as he's the god of justice, right? But but the tear seems like it. So here's here's a line. I'll, I'll you know spoil one line from a uh, Loki Senna just because it's very relevant here. Loki's kind of talking trash to Tear, and he says, "Shut up, Tear. You never knew how to mediate something good between two people. Your right hand, the one I will mention, which Fenrir tore from you." And so that the, the word you never knew how to mediate something in Old Norse, it actually says you never knew how to hold something with both hands to mediate something between people. Like that's their, uh, the kenning for to mediate something is to hold something with both hands. Uh, so you think of like Lady Justice and the scales of justice, right? That's the balance, one thing and the other. But then Tyr yeah, can't so- do that well anymore either when he loses a hand. Yeah, so there's like a double meaning there. He's, a, he's attacking like his ability to like keep balance between like two people or something or yeah. like you know provide justice but he also lost his hand so and he can't hold two i think hold something up with two hands right right and that goes to just the the depth of the poetry and just the yeah, like you know what a good uh burn that is from loki and it works on like three <laughs> different levels right but that loki is not the, just the fire god but he's also the god of burns yep, sick burns yeah dank memes and sick yeah. burns so yeah. the, the tear is and this is the thing a king would do back in the time right would be to mediate between people, right? That they were the judge as well as sometimes almost like the priest and they served a lot of different roles in their community. So that's, you know, how I try to see Tyr, even though he doesn't show up a lot, but then it also ties into the Tyr rune, this idea of justice, right? Balance, kind of being the king who has to make the tough decisions, right? So that's exactly what he does in this myth. If Fenrir is really this dangerous, he's getting so large, right? That it needs to be done. Right. And every other God is afraid and Tyr is like, well, so that's kind of the courage, right? Tyr's afraid and he does it anyways, right? He knows how likely it is for him to lose his hand. And yet, well, no one else is going to make that sacrifice. No, that's very interesting. I didn't make that connection. Um, But like on like a first read or something, or just like anybody that's like looking at the story and like looking at everything that's going on, you could look at Tyr and just be like, oh, well, they needed a God to lose his hand. And they didn't want it to be like Thor or Odin. They just had a God come up and it happened to be Tyr or something. But like, there also, on a deeper level, though, has to be like a deeper meaning to why it was Tyr and like why he lost his hand. So that's a, that's a very interesting connection that you made there. And, and this goes back, yeah, that I've you know done a lot of reading on the, the Tyr rune and how that ties into people trying to make sense of what was maybe Old Norse uh, magic and spirituality. When Snorri's writing it, right, he, he knows Tyr's significant, but he doesn't give us the whole story. And maybe kind of Snorri even just has bits and pieces. But Tyr being a god that involves sacrifices. That's the thing I think I even heard. I think it was even on uh, Matthias Nordvig's show talking about that idea. You see the tear room just on things that people are sacrificing. Oh, I, I do want to give this one quote. So this is, again, me always trying to tie in um, Greek stoicism, again, a, a pagan philosophy with this uh, pagan mythology. Um, Naturally. So it's a quote from Epictetus, who's one of the one of the earlier 
Stoic philosophers that we have a lot of good uh, writings from. So he says, every event has two handles, one by which it can be carried and one by which it can't. If your brother does you wrong, don't grab it by the handle of his wrongdoings, because that handle is incapable of lifting it. Instead, use the other handle, the handle that he is your brother, that you were raised together, and then you will have hold of the handle that can carry it. What's your thought on that, Sean? I'm trying to unpack it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a um, thing that you probably have to, that I've heard a few different interpretations on it of how to make sense. So the visual is back, especially for the Greeks, it would often be in a big jug of olive oil. Like it'd be as tall as a person and it would be very hard to carry, but they'd make sure there were handles on there. You're carrying this giant clay jug of olive oil. And the idea is, let's say there's one handle that's kind of smooth, but yet the other one is like broken or sharp or cracked. So to try to lift it by the painful handle, you know, you're trying to come to an agreement, right, with your brother. Uh -huh. And you could focus on all the things he makes you angry about and why it hurts and why you're mad. That's not going to do any good, right? But rather to the smooth handle, which is that you care about him. That That's the way to approach it, right? And it's, well, you could pick either one, right? You could be resentful and angry, or you could be caring yeah. and understanding and remember what you like about him. So like not unlike glass half empty, glass half full? Something like that, right? Yeah. And so then that idea to well, carry it with both handles, even though that's um, the one is broken and sharp, but you, you probably can't carry it by one handle either <laughs> so, you know, to grasp both handles. Right. And then that goes back to this. That's just the image that shows up for me when I think of here and he's mediating and holding a thing with both hands, right? Trying to find a place that two people can agree on their, their sure. commonalities that they care about each other rather than the, the thing that is bothering them. Yeah. Interesting. Huh? Even the Greek Stoics are like quite poetic. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you remember seeing a thing where they said that there's a, like, they, they get that lead around Fenrir, and then there's two stones that they use to, like, pound the, the leash into the ground, basically? Yeah, so they, they took a part of the fetter, the fetter that hung loose. It was called Gelja. That's the river. And they threaded, yeah. they threaded the end of it through a huge stone called Gyal. They fastened the stone deep down into the earth. They took an enormous rock called Thvietvi and drove it even further down into the earth, using it as an anchor post. The, and again, this is like, that was just um, straight from the Prosetta, Jesse Bikes translation. Right. But it's a strange thing. Why they have these names for part of the string and for the stone, right? Rocks, why does it have yeah. this name? And it's very hard to figure out what that word Giol means. The only thing I could find is it's in the root of a old Gaelic word for a pledge or a stake or a wager. Right. Why, why does that show up? But it's something about, yeah, the, you know, the, a pledge is kind of like a thing you sacrifice, right? You, you put a stake down on a bet, right? But that's the stone that holds Fenrir. And then the, the larger one, Thitvi, uh, is Old Norse for the hitter or the batterer, but kind of like a hammer, but something that kind of uh -huh. smashes. So it's just these strange, all these strange things. I'm like, they put it in there for a reason, but you, you got to try to make sense of why they do that. Wait, so what did you say the first one was? Uh, Gjaldvi or whatever? Gjol. There's or no, Gjol, the stone. Yeah, it's, the first stone is a Gaelic, so it's like from Ireland, uh, for a pledge or a stake or a wager. Gotcha, and you could you could make the case that the gods like uh, reneged on their pledge. Right, yeah, or or then that because of their deception, Tyr has to make his sacrifice, right? Something kind of like that, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. That's something, that's something, that's what this myth is about, right? Something about sacrifices and what's fair. It's kind of hard to find the deeper meaning in it, right? It's mostly just, yeah, this is just them torturing a wolf, right? Any, anything else, Sean, before I give you my last thought that's on this, like, magic idea and what we do with some of these, like, images that 
show up in the myth. No, what's, what's your thought not on that? Not too much. Yeah. I mean, I know there's like a lot to unpack with the story. And again, like I find this this episode to be like the uh, the one thing that kind of like brings on, you know, what is to come. And like just to like review our series on Loki thus far, like Loki, his um, actions of being like a of like shit housing the gods. He cuts Sif's hair and he is like threatened to like fix the situation, which he does in the gods' benefit. In order to save his life, he makes a deal with the giant to kidnap Edun. The gods get pissed, they threaten him. You see like this progression of times where Loki just has to like go out of his way to make amends with the gods that ultimately in like lead up to him potentially to be raped by Svadalfari, which resulted in the birth of Sleipnir. In this episode, like Loki has multiple kids, three of which happen to be prophesized to bring on Ragnarok. They just get fucked over. Like Fenrir gets trapped and he gets a sword put in his mouth. Hell gets sent to Niflheim. Jormungandr gets thrown into the river. Like at some point, something has got to give for Loki and his like motivations. So like what's going to happen with his nature of being, as I mentioned, a shithouser, how is that going to manifest into like being an angry god who is yeah. capable of you know a lot of destruction right, but, but that this is some kind of a decision point bringing in the, the stoic philosophy because that's just how i look at so many things that that fate is whatever it is right it's not good or bad you know even if fate says that all of loki's children are going to be horrific and they're going to destroy the world that's not a bad thing the only thing that is good or bad is your own personal choices that's what stoicism says right it's what you do right so that question of did odin act virtuously Right? Was he wise? Was he courageous? Or was he just afraid and torturing wolves because he's scared? That's the evil. Right? So not that Loki's children are evil, that Odin being scared is evil. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah. You can think about it so many ways. Yeah. Like first of all, like what if the gods didn't do anything to the children? Right. How much of this like stems from an earlier time period where Odin went out of his way to like learn everything? And he learned a little bit too much about where he was going to end up. So it's like, you can like look at it from so many different directions, but ultimately what is going to happen is going to happen. And Ragnarok's going to happen. The gods are going to die. And I know in a previous episode, we've discussed the idea of fate and how that applies to like, like, let's say hypothetically consciousness is finite and it does end, you know, that that's like everybody's Ragnarok type of thing. So like, what do you do in the meantime? Yeah. Do you go out of your way trying to worry about it? Do you try to like find ways to like beat death? Or do you just say, well, you know, this is the river of fate. I'm going to enjoy the fuck out of this river. I'm going to get an inner tube. I'm yeah. going to get some beer and I'm going to pee all over myself on a booze tube, like on a yeah. booze tube trip or something like that. So, you know, and that's the thing. It, it makes sense to be afraid, right? It's not to say like, oh, you're a terrible person for being afraid. That's no, that's exactly what makes sense. But when you're the king, right, when you're the judge, more is expected of you, right? You need to do better. And my take on this myth, right, is that Odin fails in that, right? Yeah. And then does that make Ragnarok worse? Right, hard to say, but that's that's where it goes. I have one last thought to bring in the idea of magic. So this this is an interesting thing. I was trying to find out where I read it, but I read it quite a few months back, probably when we did that series on the uh, understanding the runes. And it was an interesting magic spell I read through. I think it was in Diana Paxson's book on runes. So I think it was on the rune tier. I just couldn't find it today as I was looking for it before the episode. So the the metaphor in this spell and this ritual is the idea of recognizing what is the wolf at your throat. The idea that there's a wolf and it's it's at your throat. What does that represent in your life? One way to say that is, where are you giving away your power? 
that you actually have a say over things, yet there's something eating at you, holding you back, kind of the, that handicaps you. And it's really you handicapping yourself because you're afraid of this wolf or something like that. Making any sense, Sean, or is it a strange idea? <laughs> no, no, I feel like, you know, we all have, we all have those things in our yeah. lives that we worry about too much. Right. It's not like, like on our minds, like the thing that we're actively thinking about. It's probably like in the back or it's yeah. probably like in our mind's eye. And right. it's just like this ever casting shadow on us. And so I think all we can do is try to find ways to minimize it. So you don't yeah. like, it doesn't, you don't allow it to consume you. It doesn't I know actually, you've talked about that. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's exactly that. It doesn't actually consume you. It doesn't actually eat you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I don't know. That's a very interesting metaphor, especially when you bring in Fenrir the wolf. Yeah. It certainly, and I can't remember if this was the way the book wrote it, or it's just where my mind went. It's a little personal, right? But that the one place you can give your power away is to be afraid to show any anger, right? To be like, if I even get a little bit angry, that's a bad thing, or that's you know too scary for people, right? But there's there's an appropriate amount of anger, right? And your fear of your own anger might be that's for me, <laughs> the wolf at your throat, right? And then the the spell is interesting because then it's this idea it uses the tear rune basically to figure out what is a conscious sacrifice. As he said, like you have to kind of be aware of these things, right? You have to be conscious of it rather than pretending it's not happening and pretending it doesn't bother you, right? And so you, that's the way this magic works. Is, is basically, it's a lot like ancient cultures doing psychotherapy in a way, right? Is you <laughs> yeah. figure out what that is and then you, you put a rune, you just put a little letter that represents that. And so whenever you remind yourself that you need to stop giving your power away, you can bring the tear rune up to your mind or you can draw it somewhere or something like that. It's that reminder that you told yourself you weren't going to keep doing this, and now don't do it. And then it's figuring out, it's, yeah, it's an idea that shows up actually in quite a bit of Jungian psychology, is make it a conscious sacrifice. Because you're, you're sacrificing something unconsciously already. You're sacrificing your power, you're sacrificing a part of yourself. Better to choose what it is you want to sacrifice, rather than letting it choose you, that kind of idea. Yeah, uh, definitely. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's, this idea of how to make sense of magic, it's not always just like, it involves spells and runes and things, but it's not just mystical. It's really self-improvement, mental exercises, kind of things like that. Yeah, not very cool. Anyway, Sean, that's all I got for today. Any, anything else? Or? No, awesome. I think this is a very good good conversation. There's yeah. a lot to unpack with this story. And it's like, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, similarities between like Tyr's hand and uh, like Odin's eye. And it's like, right. you know, just like sacrifice in that, in that regard. But it goes back. They both made kind of a similar sacrifice what was their intention, right? Did Odin have the right intention when he makes that sacrifice for more wisdom or is it for more power, right? seems like Tyr had the right intention. It wasn't, it was not in any way self-interest for him. No one thinks, you know, no one's impressed or, you know, like he doesn't get anything out of it except he protects the entire rest of the village, right? And so yeah, that's... Odin is very selfish and uh, <laughs> Tyr could be looked at as very selfless. Right. So what, what's the holy sacrifice? What's the unholy sacrifice, right? I think that's a, that's a very great observation there, yeah. Well, yeah, no, that, that's it. I think a uh, good conversation. Uh, have a great night, David. Dude, thanks, John. Thanks. Bye. Bye.